The reality is that Bitcoin will outcompete every other money going forward. At this point, during the monetization process, is going to increase 10, 100, you know, 500 fold maybe. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? Man, it's so sunny here. I've just had a great weekend at Silverstone. It was so hot, I completely burnt my face off because I'm a typical idiot man. I don't think ahead and I didn't have any suntan lotion. So I am very burnt, but it was a great weekend. Great to see Lewis Hamilton win, although to be honest, I did want Max Verstappen to win. I did. I know it might sound a little bit anti-British, but my friend, he's race engineer for Max, so I want him to win. So sorry. Sorry, anyone British. But it was a great weekend. Had a great time. Great to see the crowds out. Great to see people just out and enjoying themselves. I think we've missed a lot of this. And it's Freedom Day in the UK. You have to laugh at that. Happy Freedom Day to all my fellow Brits. Anyway, I am getting fixed. My back is getting better. I am very soon going to be back on the road. And I've got a new film series being planned. I'm thinking of heading out to a few places. Lebanon, Nigeria, El Salvador, Palestine, Israel. A whole bunch of different places to see what's going on with Bitcoin there. So keep an eye out for that. Anyway... Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I use for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Greg Foss and also Dylan LeClaire is making his first appearance. This kid is so smart. We're going to be talking about debt cycles and the rise of Bitcoin. It's a fascinating interview. Dylan absolutely crushed his first show, and you know what Greg's like. Anyway, before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, today we kick off with Casa, the safest way for you to store your badass Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks. There are way too many ways for you to lose your Bitcoin or have it stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations, and that is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a Casa customer for over a year. You can drop me an email or a DM on Twitter. I will tell you about my experience. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. If you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S, C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my friends sportsbet.io over in Estonia. And now we are in a gap for the football. We're still in the lull following the Euros. But the Premier League will be starting again soon. And the crowds will be there. I'm very excited for a new season. I'm expecting Liverpool to win everything. Now, I'm also going to go out to Estonia. I'm going to visit the team at sportsbet.io and find out what their plans are for next season. Now, they are the betting partner of Arsenal, and they are the front of shirt sponsor for Southampton, and they're putting a Bitcoin logo out there for all people watching Premier League football, which is very cool. Now, with sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They cover football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, even esports, everything you can think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And also, let's talk about Exa's wallet, who I use as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. And you know what? I was using Exodus when I was over in El Salvador last time. Primarily, I'd been using the Lightning Network, but I needed a few dollars to settle a bill. And because I had some Bitcoin in my Exodus wallet, I went to the ATM in El Zonte, I transferred it over, and I had some dollars in my hand. Now, as you know, 
UX is important to me, and Exodus crushes it. Because with the Exodus mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. Now, if you want to check out Exodus, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Okay, so onto the show today. And it's a quick break from the Lightning series as we have Boomer, but brilliant Greg Foss back on the show and joined by someone from the opposite end of the age spectrum. We've got Dylan LeClaire from Bitcoin Magazine. Now, I'm always talking about Ray Dalio's video, How the Economic Machine Works, because it's such a great way to understand the underpinnings of macroeconomics. I mean, I've seen the film myself. I must have watched it like four or five times. It's one of those things where I kind of need a refresher because, you know, I'm not the smartest dude. And I sometimes forget this shit. Now, if you haven't seen it, you may want to check it out before you listen to the show. It's only 30 minutes long, and it will give you a good perspective of the discussion we're about to have. Now, Dylan wrote an article that builds off Ray Dalio's work. And with the added perspective of Bitcoin being the logical conclusion of the macro environment we're in. And I asked my friend Greg to join us because he knows quite a bit about debt, quite a bit more than anyone else. Now, I know you lot are going to love this one. It's a real banger. But just a big shout out to Dylan. What an interesting guy. He's like 20 years old. He's like half my age, about eight times smarter than me. And he absolutely crushes his first experience. But if you do have any feedback about this, you want to reach out to me, you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, or jump into my Telegram group. All right, over to Dylan and Greg. Greg, Foss, welcome back, man. How are you? Well, I'm so excited to be back, and uh, I'm doing well. Thanks, Peter. Nice, nice to have Dude, met you in person in, in Miami. It was really, uh, it was really a great experience. Dude, Miami was awesome. It was I had such a good time. Uh, it's great to meet you too, Dylan. First appearance on the show. How you feeling, brother? Feeling awesome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Long time listener, so uh, you know, happy to make it on here. Well, listen, you wrote such a good article. We had to get you on. We had to talk about this, but also uh, it's good to have Greg to join us. Um, you both know the show. You both know the way I do things. I like to keep things nice and simple for easy for people to understand. But th- this was great timing, your article, because I think it came after I'd watched uh, Ray Dalio's video probably for about the fifth time. But I'd seen it around the time you wrote this because every time I'm like just trying to see where we're going or kind of understand what's going on, I go and watch that video and then I'm like, ah, oh, shit, we're absolutely fucked. Um, but that video is brilliant. Your know, explanation is brilliant. I'm going to stick a link into the show notes so people go and check it out. It is called Conclusion of the Long-Term Debt Cycle and the Rise of Bitcoin. And uh, it appears like we, it appears we are coming to the conclusion of the long-term debt cycle. But Dylan, look, just welcome yourself. Explain to people who you are and then talk about why you approach this article because it's a bit of a beast. Yeah, um, so my name is Dylan LeClaire. Um, I work for Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, started up with them like about five months ago, um, d- didn't really start doing um, content, but more like media stuff. But um, yeah, started there. Uh, dropped out of school about a year ago. Um, like have a have a business called Twenty uh, First Paradigm, where I kind of consult people about Bitcoin and and why it's important, why they need it. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of a kind of a crazy year. Life's changed a lot, but uh, yeah, I think uh, in around April, I. I put out this this piece called the the conclusion of the long term debt cycle and the rise of Bitcoin. Um, after reading a lot of of Ray Dalio, his work, um, he has like a, a pretty long uh, book, which is kind of like lays this out. It's like kind of how he made his career, honestly. Um, and I also have watched that that like thirty minute video multiple times. Um, you'll, you'll probably learn more in that video than you will, you know, from a college economics degree, to be honest. So um, everyone should go watch that at the very least. 
Dude, I send that video to so many people. I've stuck it on Facebook. I've told my friends, listen, you need to watch this. You need to understand what's going on in the economy. I think I learned more about economics uh, in that than the two years I did study in economics for A-level. Uh, I think you're absolutely fucking right. It's, it's, it's such an unbelievably condensed video of how the economy works. Uh, but I do want to ask you, could you you said you dropped out of school. All the smartest people drop out of school. They realize it's bullshit for some reason. What were you studying and why did you drop out? Yeah, I was studying. I was studying business. Um, like been a numbers guy kind of my entire life, but um, was like kind of had a focus on like finance and econ. Um, I was like learning Keynesian economics, and at the same time, um, I'm I'm listening to you know a bunch of podcasts and reading and and doing all this stuff on the side for free. Um, and they sent us home because of COVID, and it was like the contrast between like Zoom University taught by a bunch of boomers. And and like you know, free podcast like free podcasts and Bitcoin Twitter were like couldn't be more, you know, the, the contrast couldn't be more stark. So I uh, dropped out and just you know picked up a job and to stack as many sats as I could. Um, and you know, about six eight, and I think about nine months later, I, I landed a job here. So you know, worked out worked out well. Avoid all that college debt. Yeah, for sure. Good move, brother. Greg, you must love this video as well. You must know the Ray Dalio video. Yes, sir. I I, I wanted to. I do, and I've followed uh, Mr. Dalio's career. Um, well, shouldn't say follow it. We tried to mimic it uh, at the hedge funds I worked at. Certainly, his risk parity uh, his risk parity uh, platform was uh, brilliant. Uh, it actually doesn't work anymore. He knows it uh, because interest rates don't go from fourteen to zero, and then from zero to minus fourteen percent. Okay. So the 10-year uh, over my career and his career, U.S. 10-year went from 14% down to just under 1%. And that works great when you use bonds as a hedge against the volatility in equity markets. But uh, mathematics, bonds are only mathematics. And uh, the math doesn't work when you go below zero. Uh, Mr. Dalio knows that. And so most famous, recently, most famously, he said, I'd rather own Bitcoin mm-hmm. than a bond. And uh, Mr. Dalio shows that he understands math and he's trying to tell other people to study math. But unfortunately, they're stuck in the they're looking backwards. They're driving in the rearview mirror. So um, but can I add one thing? So I met Dylan down in uh, in Miami first time. And uh, just before we went on stage, uh, uh, Dylan tells me, I go, why did you drop out of UVM? And he goes, because I was sick of the Keynesian brainwashing. And I, that, that, uh, that, that line has stuck with me since I met you, Dylan. Um, you know, because it is, it becomes, it becomes a bit of a, uh, uh, a brainwashing. Everyone accepts the, accepts the, uh, the curriculum as being gospel. And the truth is, no true academics have ever sat in a risk in a risk chair where they've traded risk as a career, and they'll quickly realize that uh, what you learn in a textbook versus what you learn sitting in a risk in a risk chair, like Mister Dalio's done, uh, two very different lives. And uh, there's theory, there's practice. Sometimes the two intersect, and sometimes they do not intersect. Uh, this is what makes life exciting. And if you sit in an academic chair like uh, Steve Hankey does, I would suggest you just wrap his research in fish, okay? Or the flip side, I wouldn't use his research to wrap fish, quite honestly. So take Mr. Dalio at face value. Take young kids like Dylan, uh, who've seen the, uh, you know, who question the system. And uh, just want to say that that's what gives me strength is uh, meeting uh, 
young men like Dylan, who uh, decided to take, you know, to take his education under, uh, under his own wing and, uh, and go with it. So uh, proud to be here, boys. Appreciate the kind words. Yeah. Good work, Dylan. Um, I'm in the uh, same challenge with my own children now. I've, I've really come to question a lot about the education they're getting. And, uh, I, you know, I try and teach them my own things and, like we, we're making progress. Uh, luckily, my my son is a, an art student, so there's not too much propaganda involved in that. As long as he avoids some of the the woke elite. Uh, <laughs> but there's a couple of interesting points you made there. I want to touch on actually because one of the things I find really interesting about Ray Dalio, he seemed he seemed to not get Bitcoin for quite some time. Um, but like he put that tweet out that time. He said, "You know what? I could be wrong about this. I might you know need to reconsider my position." He kind of put himself out there and admitted it, and looked like he went and kind of changed position and it feels like there's a lot of people out there who just don't want to do that they've like got this it's almost like this sunk cost if i've been so against bitcoin i've got to stay against bitcoin and someone like that uh that really sticks out is uh, hanky I've, I've been replying i've been a bit of a reply guy for his for the last two weeks because he keeps tweeting about various countries i think it's like ethiopia and lebanon and the currency crisis they're happening i just keep saying i don't understand how you don't understand bitcoin when you're posting this shit like it's almost like he feels like the solution is within the current system, but he refuses to accept that maybe Bitcoin can be an answer. So he'll post about Ethiopia's inflation or he'll post about Lebanon's inflation rate and currency collapse. And then the next post will be something very anti-Bitcoin. I, I don't understand why he won't just even make an attempt to understand Bitcoin. It's a really strange position. Most ironic thing is that he has troubled currency project in his bio. Like, like, that's like, you know, one of the things he does. And he, and he said, uh, think about El Salvador, he said the most prudent thing they could do is elect a currency board. It's like, you know, I think I, you just have to take opinions like from, like from guys like Hanky, just with a grain of salt at this point, just ignore them. You know, I mean, like being a reply guy's fun, I, I do it too. <laughs> but. Uh-huh. The, the truth is, guys, the best risk managers in the world, of which Ray Dalio is obviously one of them, they change their positions yeah. when the facts change, right? Anybody who sticks to a position that's costing them money will get carried out on a gurney off the trading floor or out of the hedge fund business, right? And this is what Hanky doesn't understand. It's what, you know, I don't want to bring up, bring up Peter Schiff's name, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like these people, you can see when conflict uh, uh, enters the situation or enters the discussion, meaning, you know, I'm a gold bug and I won't promote a better alternative but then Mr. Dalio's honest as the day is long. He says, I could be wrong. Well, so could all of us be wrong, at least admit that. Whereas other people who are dogmatically opposed to it because they've done their three hours of research on it. My goodness, you know, this isn't even funny. Um, Mar- Matt O'Dell tweeted the other day, anybody who pretends they truly under- un- understand Bitcoin uh, is either lying to themselves or lying to other people. And that's the truth. I mean, how long have you guys been studying it and continue to learn new new things about it and see the network and the lightning layer two and all this stuff? You you can't possibly claim to learn it after only studying it for five years, which I've been, excuse me, to, to be an expert in it for five years, which I've been doing. You know, it's impossible. You continue to learn new stuff. So those people who categorically dismiss it as uh, I, I looked at it for three hours and I, this is not going to work. Volatile. Um, you can't listen to people like that. <laughs> it's too volatile. Uh, well, that volatility is the is the price of return. You want volatility. As a trader, you love volatility. I don't get it. People just don't, uh, you know, as if they put 3% in their portfolio and they forget about 
the other 97% of their portfolio. It's that 3% that's going to absolutely, you know, define their careers. That's exactly wrong. And that's what Mr. Dalio understands. And I wanted to point out one thing, Peter. I think at the beginning, it would have been impossible for Bridgewater to uh, embrace Bitcoin before it got over, you know, a $500 billion market cap sort of thing. It's just not a big enough market for the size of the fund that Ray runs. And they need liquidity. They need uh, long shorts. They need to be able to move in and, and, and amass a position. And you know, it's like anything. Sometimes when a when a, a a small cap company is just too small, it might be the best investment in the world, and their analysts might agree that it is. But to get a position size that would mean that would matter in their portfolio, that that just can't happen in many cases. So Bitcoin is now in the big boys league, and uh, you'll be surprised. I I just got off the phone, uh, or it was a Zoom call two days ago with a very large family office in New Jersey, a kid I went to school with, 30 years he's been building his business, and he's finally come around to realizing they need to consider Bitcoin as a uh, portfolio uh, uh, addition. And uh, look, if they're doing it, I promise you all uh, other quantitatively inclined uh, uh, accounts are looking at it as well. And volatility is good. You got to understand, volatility is the price of return. Well, I know, man. I know, I know, I know. I mean, it, look, we it's probably for another show that there is an issue with volatility as as someone like uh, El Salvador Correct. accepts it as Correct. a medium exchange. Yeah. People have to think about it. But it's, it's, that's about, you know, risk management and, and teaching risk management. But like your other point, refer, reference to Matt O'Dell, listen, I am in some ways, I am the luckiest Bitcoiner in the, in the all of Bitcoin because every week... I get to speak to the smartest fucking people and I get to ask them all the questions that I want answered and I still don't know shit and I accept that. Mm-hmm. So listen, you, you make a really good point there. But listen, we're going to make you the star of the show today, Dylan. Me and Greg, are the bo- we're the boomers that kind of get Bitcoin a little bit, but you know, you're the youngster here. Yeah. Your, your age probably starts with a two. You're still handsome. You probably kill it on Tinder. So listen, we're going to rush. We're going to go ahead with you. Uh, Let's work through this. So th- there will be people who won't have watched the Ray Dalio video. We'll tell them to watch it, and they still won't watch it. We'll put it in the show notes, and they still still won't watch it. So, like, for those, we need to work through it anyway. Let's talk about this long-term debt cycle, how we get there, et cetera, et cetera. It, we're essentially talking about money we borrow from ourselves. Yeah, so, like, many people think, when you, when you think just, like, borrowing, right, people think, like, borrowing from someone else. But in the most basic sense, when you borrow money, you're borrowing from your future self. You're pulling productivity forward. Right. So like, you know, whether at an individual level, right, you just, you know, you borrow a hundred dollars and you have to pay it back plus interest. You, you spend that money today or you invest it or, or whatever you do with the money, you have to pay that back with your future productivity. And many people don't think of it like that, but that, that, that holds true at an individual level. Like everybody can kind of grasp that, but it also holds true at a macroeconomic level. It, you know, whether it's an industry or a sector or a nation or the whole world, right? Um, and so debt, it, because of that debt, is, is cyclical. Um, and so you, you see this play out um, over, you know, over eight to ten year periods, um, and you also see this play out at, you know, over eighty to one hundred year periods, or you know, around there. It's kind of a kind of an estimate, but um, you know, and then these these kind of cycles play out because debt is is cyclical. Right. So to help somebody understand that, when you're saying you're borrowing from yourself, it's because in the future, if you if you borrow if you're borrowing money now, say like to buy a car. And then you've got to pay for that car back plus the interest. Um, if you, a lot of people do something based on the fact they think, look, my career is going to grow. I'm going to earn more money. 
you know, this is cool, this is fine, I'll be able to support it. But if your wages are stagnant through in that period, you're, that's where it actually becomes difficult for yourself on an individual level because you suddenly become burdened with this debt and that means your you know, spending power of what you earn in the future is going to be decreased. So you're putting a bit of pressure on yourself. Let's try and like extrapolate that out and think in terms of like the entire economy, why we get to these boom and bust cycles. And, and listen, when, when I grew up and I studied Keynesian economics, we'd study boom and bust cycles, right? But these these bus cycles were like we had the 2008 crisis and now we've got what appears to be a bigger crisis it feels like this whole uh let's call it short term debt cycle moving into a long term debt cycle is becoming some something like it's going to get quite out of hand for me right now you know i look at all the different points that is in your articles you know you raise the the issue of the rise of populism, the wage differential, the fact that you will see uprising. And I only literally tweeted, I think yesterday, it feels like we've got a protest in every fucking country in the world right now. Yeah, I mean, that's not coincidence, right? Um, I mean, so like you have these debt cycles um, and in the short term, right? Because of you know, you're pulling demand forward on the upswing of a, of a credit expansion, it's, it's kind of like a self-reinforcing like upwards boom, right? You, you, you pull forward demand. Um, if, if that... If that debt is used for investment or you know it gets a positive return, that's a good thing. Like debt isn't always a bad thing. If you use debt to increase your income, right? Like, be it if you borrow some money and you you know hire a producer, you know, with money that you, you couldn't you didn't have before, that's actually good and increases your productivity. Um, but many people, uh, especially kind of during the the later state or like the the bubble phase of of a debt cycle. They use that debt for unproductive things. I, I'm going to go use that debt, and I'm going to buy a car because it's cool and it makes me feel good. Or I'm going to go use that debt to, you know, whatever gamble. It could be anything. Um, and that debt clothes. is bad debt. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, kind of, and and people people in in these upswings feel richer, right? You 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 borrow money. Your your the asset value raised because you, because you have more assets. You're more credit worthy. You have more collateral, and and this this kind of occurs. You know, at a national scale or a global scale, um, and so over the course of, you know, there's there's you know these like people are kind of intuitively understand whether or not like they're an economist or not. They understand like the business cycle, right? Like, oh, times are good. You know, everyone's productive, and you know, once every ten years or back in two thousand eight, there was a recession. That maybe people don't really understand why or that it's driven by credit, but they understand that you know maybe once every ten years. You know, there's good times and then there's bad times and there's a recession and things get a little hard. People that people don't really, you know, kind of understand the driving forces behind that. But you know, in 2008, 2000, or 2020, we have these recessions. Um, but over the course of the last 40 years, um, you know, interest rates have gone in the U.S. from 20 percent in or around there in, in 1981 to, to zero today. Right. So so anybody that's that's holding an asset, you know, Greg talks about credit a lot. If you if you hold the long bond from or you know you're just a bond investor from 1981 to to 2020, you just sit on your hands essentially. I mean, you know, there's there's more to it than than that, but you know, the present value of all assets when interest rates go from 20 percent to zero skyrocket. But who's left out of that equation? The wage earners, right? Anybody that that doesn't have you know a bag of assets is is kind of getting pillaged. Um, and so this is like a systematic thing. You know, there's not one person to blame. There's not, you know, it's not this person's fault or that person's fault. This is occurring at a global scale, um, and it's in most, for the most part because of the international monetary order. It's kind of driven by the U.S., but it is a global thing, right? Everybody that, you know, the one percent, the rise of populism, all this stuff, 
like red team versus blue team, Democrats versus Republicans. I mean, it's all just symptoms of a bigger problem here. Um, and, I, and that's what like kind of a lot of people don't really understand. Greg, listen, look, I know we look a similar age, but I think you've got a few years on me. Uh, 20% interest rates? That was that's a correct. thing? You that's put, when I started you put money in, in the 19, bank? 1982. Well, I when was four. Okay, so I was 20. So there you go. Um, so to be exact, I was 19, but, uh, yeah, 1982, I am 58, sir. So the good thing is, yes, it was 20% interest rates and Volcker needed to snuff out inflation. Um, and, uh, he, he succeeded. Now you can do that, uh, mathematically when you don't have a debt burden that we have today. Okay. And, uh, so there's a, a, a Dylan. I love the way you you talk about pulling things forward. Look, all a, all a bond is is a contractual obligation. And everyone said, "Oh my God, I made so much money in bonds on a capital gains basis." But really, when interest rates go from twenty down to one percent, and let's say you cash in that thirty year bond when interest rates have gone from twenty, so you have a coupon on your thirty year bond is a third a twenty percent coupon, and in ten years. You decide with 20 years remaining, I'm going to cash out that 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 30 year bond and it's gone up. It's trading like one hundred and sixty dollars of parity because that's only bond math. And in, in year 20, though, you take that coupon and rates have gone from 20 percent down to uh, call it 12 percent. Um, all you do is you pull forward those 20 those the remaining 20 years of 20 percent coupons and then. You now have a 12% return going forward. So that's the bond math of it. But you can bring it to the same context of borrowing money because ultimately that's all that a, uh, a discount rate is, is it's, it's a, a measure of a, it's, it, it sets the base level of, uh, of risk. So if your government is borrowing at 12%, everything else is, is, uh, discounted on top of that, right? So equities get discounted, let's say at 12% plus an equity premium. Uh, corporate bonds get discounted at 12% plus a corporate bond premium, etc. So we've gone from a 20% coupon down to an under, in the 10 year, down to an under 1% coupon. And then recently, the, the, the quintessential, yeah, hold on, Peter, I need, I want to say this. It, we had a 30 year bond in one year ago, yeah. It's, they got issued at a one and a quarter percent coupon, okay? It's now trading down 30 points, 30 bond points, because interest rates in the 30-year went from one and a quarter what's percent 30 points? back up to two and like, a half What does 30 percent. points mean to, 30 bond mean to points. A, like to a layman? Okay, you yeah. buy a bond. Sure, you buy a bond at 100 cents on the dollar, because that's generally when it gets issued. It gets issued at 100 cents on the dollar. And... It traded down to 70 cents. This is supposed to be capital pres- preservation in bonds. And you buy a bond one year ago at 100 cents on the dollar with a one and a quarter coupon on it in the 30 year. And now it's trading down 20 points or 25 points because interest rates have gone from one and a half, one and a quarter to two and a half, and then back to 2% in the 30 year. It's all rounding errors from a basis points, Peter, but that's the real life impact on the price of your bond. Did I just see Australia sell $100 million of bonds, 10 year bonds or something at minus 1%? You did, sir. <laughs> it's laughable. Okay. It's laughable. I mean, I'm just trying to be, I'm trying to be rational here, but that sounds fucked up. 
Okay. So uh, basically, this I, I'm trying to think why rationally would you do that? If you have an expectation inflation is going to be high, there's actually might be a good trade, right? It's good for the seller. You know, the seller of bonds at a negative yield means it's turned into that liability from the seller is now an asset because they issue they issue uh, uh, bonds at uh, at 100 cents on the dollar and they only have to pay 98 to 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 uh, to get their to, to 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 eliminate the principal obligation. It's you know mathematics with but a negative yield. Any pardon me, but they found buyers, well, right, Greg? Maybe you can you can speak more on this, but I, I I imagine a lot of those the buyers of those bonds are probably mandated to buy them. No, oh they are mandated yeah. guys, but it's a liability. Yeah. It's no longer an asset. They are mandated to lose money. That's a contra- a contractual obligation to lose money before int- before inflation expectations are even are even priced in. Peter, it's crazy. I know you get it. It's like I lent this guy a hundred bucks and he's going to give me ninety eight bucks back, and I'm going to be happy about this. <laughs> What the heck? Well, this, Are you this, kidding me? This, this is ridiculous. Look, I, I, I wrote down one line specifically from Dylan's article, and it just makes me think of this. There is mathematically no way out of the current economic environment. It's just yep. the signal is there that, that we are in some kind of absolute fucked position. And it's like, so what I care about is like, okay, look, we're all screwed. How's this going to play out? Is, is, Le- is Lebanon... Is that a, like a lens into the future for us in Europe and the US, or will Europe and the US, you know, have high inflation, but certainly not a situation like they've had there? Like I'm, I'm in my head. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think how this plays out because hyperinflationary events are, are things that happen in countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. They don't happen in the UK for me. Like I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. Of course it's not. Like I, until I, what until they well, do. until they do. But like I don't know, Dylan. Look, you you've got. You've got it in your article, you know. This yeah, long-term um, set, set cycle is coming to end. How how that how does it all end? Yeah, so I mean, like how we got here, right? Is like, oh, you know, the, these short-term debt cycles. It's like you know, the eight to ten years, like we talked about. It's essentially like debt-to-income ratios reach an unsustainable level. What happens? Um, all of the malinvestment, all of the misallocation of capital in a in a capitalistic system would get wiped out, right? But but what Which happens? Which is not a bad like, thing, by the way. No, it's it's a creative destruction. Yeah. It's called creative destruction, guys. It's supposed to happen. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a great thing, right? It's just like you know, it's just. But you have what, like I covered in the article, what we have now is, I mean, in the U.S., you know, there's there's a semblance of, of capitalism, right? But um, you know, fifty percent of every transaction is money, right? And and the price of money is centrally planned. The price of money is not. It, it's really ha- we haven't had capitalism. The price of money, interest rates, has been centrally planned. So every time we kind of have or have started to have some sort of deleveraging, where you know anybody that was kind of you know over over leveraged or, or out of position, they would get wiped out. Well, what happens? Central banks come in, they lower the price of money. It's essentially it's essentially a bailout, and and it's happened at a greater and greater scale as these debt cycles come along, right? And socializing losses, Dylan, that's exactly what you call it. You call it socializing losses. So long-term capital management in 1998, a total example of Wall Street getting bailed out using crony capitalism, socializing the losses, and eventually that financial burden gets transferred to the burden of the balance sheets of the Fed, which ultimately is the citizens, okay? Greg, is that, it, it does, all right, 
a couple of reasons why I think that might happen. Does that happen because you know it is crony capitalism, or is it is it is it voter protection? Is it because we live in this short term uh, four year? Uh, presidential or prime minister cycle and therefore they're trying to protect their votes they kick the can down the road the next administration can deal with that yada yada is is that what's going on which one is it is it beautiful so i think it's both well it's both and here's i'm going to add to though this is cool dylan was totally right because it's only math peter now it's only math before there was a time when we could have uh, uh, uh you know bailed out the great financial crisis in 2008 2009 the, the financial burden was transferred from the, the financial system to the balance sheet of the Fed. If we had been prudent, we, and I say we, as because every single country was in the, same, uh, in the same situation, ECB, the Bank of Canada, if we had paid down that debt prudently, and it would have cost a, uh, you know, an administration their, uh, their, their votes because you go into power and you say, uh, yeah, you know what, guys? Uh, the prior administrations have pulled forward too much demand. So we're going to pay it down now and it's going to be hard. We're going to pay it down. Growth is going to suffer because we're not having the ever, ever expanding debt balloon to fund deficits, et cetera. We're going to pay it down, but we're going to be prudent for our children. You think the guy's going to be in power in the next four years after that? Not even close. All right. So they don't do it. And they continue to kick the can down the road, like you said. And now he mathematically, as Dylan said, it is now impossible to reach a growth rate in the global economy that will service your debt and allow, not allow that debt balloon just to expand organically because of the coupon on that debt. Dylan nailed it. It's math, guys. Very simple. Well, I've, I've got two more questions. Like, I'll throw this one at you, Dylan, and then you you can feel free to pass it back to uh, Greg if, if you want. But should 2008, should that have been the end of the long-term debt cycle? Because as I as I think I remember it, the bailout was around eight hundred million, which right now actually doesn't seem like that much money compared to what's happened. The trillions we're seeing printed right now, the eight hundred million doesn't seem like that Billion. big a bailout. But it feels like perhaps you know what happened in two thousand eight that was the end of the long term. Yeah, so it went, it's actually kind of funny when uh, when you watch Ray Dalio's video, he made he made that uh, that thirty minute video that we were talking about at the beginning, like. He made that in I think 2011 or 12 or 13. He they, he actually referred to that as as um, you know kind of the end of the or you know the the long term debt cycle. You know like interest rates at zero, um, and he kind of walked through the the logical path going forward. So like um, and in Ray Dalio's book, and he kind of talked about this in the video. There's like three types of monetary policy. Um, first type of monetary policy is interest rate monetary policy. Like that's the central bank's like bread and butter, right? That's what they use. It's essentially their lever to kind of control the economy um, and and to control basically the cost of capital. And so over the last uh, I guess forty years since nineteen eighty one, it's essentially you know debt debt loads, um, debt to income levels get too high. What they do, they lower the cost of capital. There's another you know eight to ten years we coast by, and it happens again and it happens again. Well, in 2008, interest rates hit zero. It's kind of like a hard floor. And so what do they do? Well, in order to recapitalize the banking system, in order to stimulate the economy, they move to the second um, monetary policy, which is, which is QE. So they essentially, go into, they essentially go into the bond market with freshly printed cash, and they'll tell you, they'll say, oh, it's not printing money because we're just replacing a dollar of assets with a dollar of cash. But, um, you know, that's not, that's not really, I don't really, I think that's kind of... Um, like, wrong. I don't think that's yeah. It's wrong. 
but a nice, um, you know, because it's putting a, a bid in the credit market. It's that wouldn't actually exist. It's it's adding liquidity to the system that wouldn't actually is, exist. Um, and so what they did is they had those tarp the tarp bailout. They essentially took a bunch of junk um, assets off off the balance sheets of the banks, um, and they went in and they're essentially, you know, they weren't doing it to the extent they are today, but they're essentially um, helped to monetize the deficit. They're essentially giving giving the government, um, you know, loans at 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 an interest rate that they wouldn't actually get. Um, and so quantitative easing, you know, when during a liquidity crunch, during kind of a recession, it, at, the, at the beginning of it, it, it actually, there is some benefit. I mean, it, you can, we can argue the merits of it, but when there is this, like an illiquidity in the bond market, uh, it actually, there is there's a benefit to it. But with each marginal dollar that is printed, with each marginal dollar that's kind of stuffed into the system, QE becomes less and less and less um, beneficial or has less and less of an effect. And so uh, it, it, Ray Dalio sorry, walks Sorry to, to interrupt you, Dylan. Is that why now we're seeing uh, uh, levels of essential money printing right now, which uh, like a vastly higher than what happened in 2008? Is that why it's like trillions now? Yeah, because... You know, like the the six hundred billion that that they did at you know the TARP bailouts and all that. And in a way, I said eight hundred I million mean, earlier. That was that should have been eight hundred billion, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, I mean that's a drop in the bucket. I mean they're doing they're doing one hundred twenty billion dollars a month. You know, forty billion in mortgage backed securities and eighty billion in, in um, treasuries. And and that's just the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ. They're all they're all doing it. Um, and and that's just kind of like the logical conclusion uh, or like the logical path forward for a central bank. Um, you know that's that's kind of how how a debt cycle goes on, um, and they can and they and they really don't have a choice because we're in a we're in a purely fiat system. Like back in in 1929, there was there was this big private debt bubble after the Roaring Twenties, but we were on a gold peg. So so they couldn't they really couldn't um, go in and just essentially you know for for be, like for lack of a better term print money because there was a gold backing that all of that 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 huge debt bubble could collapse back onto a gold peg, right? Gold was kind of that bearer instrument that everything, that all the malinvestment and all the bad debt could collapse back onto. Well, now we're in a fiat system. And, and you know, Greg talks about it and he nails it. Um, he, knows, he knows the math better than I do, but fiat is created through lending and it's destroyed through default or repayment, right? So w- when, I, when I lend you or Greg 100 bucks plus interest, I now have a $100, $105 asset. Greg has the cash and a liability. That actually creates, commercial bank lending creates money. And so when that money can't be repaid back, it all collapses down. The asset I thought I had, well, it's not there anymore. Greg, Greg whatever he did with the money, you know. <laughs> and so all, all of this, it just kind of collapses down. My asset, I don't have it. I'm not as credit worthy. I can't go, I can't go lend because, or I can't go borrow any money because I don't have any assets. And, and it just kind of spirals all the way down, literally to zero. I mean, maybe that's an over-exaggeration, but they can't let it unwind. It's just, it's... Number one, it's not politically feasible, right? You're not going to get elected. You're not going to go up as a, as a central banker and let everything collapse around you. But two, like literally, the system can't. Like credit has to expand, or else everything, you know, goes to all hell. Again, it's mathematics. Dylan nails it. It's beautiful. I just want to add one thing: the fiat currency is now the error term that solves the growth in the numerator, which is your total global debt versus the denominator, which is total global GDP. And we have reached a point of no return where the numerator is going to grow, outstrip the growth of the denominator under any plausible scenario, which means you need to print money 
to solve that debt spiral again, Peter. It's only mathematics. Gosh, grade 11 math students would understand this if they actually were taught in school. But you don't teach this in school because it exposes the fiat Ponzi. Yeah, there, mm. like there's four ways out of a, a, a big debt crisis. There's, and, and Dalio yeah. lays this out. And for me, this was kind of a light bulb moment. Like I was, I was reading his book um, last March and it was really like, whoa, that's kind of when I realized there's, there's no alternative to Bitcoin. It was like, there's four, there's four ways out of a, a, a long-term debt cycle or a, a big debt crisis. Austerity, so spending less money. Debt defaults or restructurings. Um, transfers of money and credit from, from the haves to the have-nots. Or printing money, essentially. Quantitative easing, printing money, whatever you want to call it. Bank recapitalization. Well, the, first three, the first three are hugely unpopular with immediate effect. The, yeah. the last one and- is... The last one is like is the is the kick in the can down the road. Yeah, the last one is it makes asset holders feel good. And um and 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 Ray Dalio, when he lays out his three different types of monetary policy, the, the third one is stimulus checks, you know, basically money to the people. You can call it, you know, now it's called UBI or I guess MMT may fall in this bucket, right? You know, you can you can get more create, you know, quote unquote, create more jobs or do you know do like the the theories of Stephanie Kelton and all of this? The, well, I was just about this about to say the school it, of Stephanie Kelton. I've had her on the show, man, and like it was a. I tried to hold my. I listened own. to I that episode. Right, it was pretty like, brutal. I, I can't lie. Yeah, I like. I think I did okay. I just. I was like, I couldn't get her on the same page as me, and and uh, I was like willing to give her the time. But I was like, look, you're living in a fucking dream world. Yeah. No. It, no. It is right. It's it's living in a dream world with that. It's not capitalism, and so. Um, you know the, these first three um, kind of like ways out of a, of a debt crisis just aren't going to happen. What's going to happen? It's going to be well, just, Elizabeth just because Warren's of, talked about the wealth tax. Well, have fun taxing my Bitcoin that I keep in my head. <laughs> well played, brother. Well played. Mm-hmm. But also, listen. Even you can raise taxes. It, there would be a uh, point of diminishing returns, right? You raise your tax rate high enough the diminishing marginal return in the tax base because uh, more of the economy goes underground, et cetera. One of the, 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 the things that, that, that Stephanie Kelton obviously doesn't understand is mathematics. Again, we just have to look at the simplistic size of the debt balloon versus the ability of the economy to, to produce an, enough growth to keep up with the growth of the interest coupon, your debt service obligation. It doesn't work. Therefore, you have to keep printing money to uh, solve the the uh, the circularity of this. Uh, it's like an error. It's the I call it the error term, but think of it as circular value. You remember in Lotus 1, 2, 3? You probably don't, but they used to. If you formulated a uh, reformatted a cell and you 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 built that cell on top of itself, they would give you an error in the bottom left hand corner. Circular logic. Well, that's what MMT is. It's circular logic. It does not friggin' work. Okay. And and Lotus just, one two three. Do you remember Dude, Lotus one two three? Is, isn't that like isn't that isn't that like pre Excel? It was. It was. It was. It was brilliant. It was pre Excel, but then Microsoft, you know, took the code and uh, combined it with with WordPerfect, which was there was Lotus one two three and WordPerfect, and now there's Word and Excel, and they're both in the Microsoft suite, and they talk to each other perfectly, and all of a sudden Lotus one two three was like, okay, done. But 
There was a day when you programmed in Lotus 123 because that was the spreadsheet language. I sort of was okay at it, but that's, that's dating me because it was pre-2000, uh, right? So, but this is neat. Dylan, Dylan's right. Think about this. It's all about collateral values. A bank can, can, can lend against collateral that's appreciating in value because a bank is so levered itself. It needs to see appreciating collateral values in the economy in order to increase its lending base as well. So, Dylan, you're nailing it on all fronts. I love it. I wanted to say one term that we're using, uh, we're throwing out TARP. T-A-R-P stands for Troubled Asset Relief Program. And you're right, Peter, it was $600 billion in 2008. And we did it to bail out the financial system, essentially transferring leverage or bad assets from the financial system onto the balance sheets of the, uh, of the Fed. If we had paid that down without any QE taper tantrums because they were looking at the equity market. Oh my God, now the equity market's going to puke again. We got to stop this QE tapering. We have to continue it. And they became, they wanted to stop the debt cycle. Okay. They wanted to stop the credit cycle, which is a periodic, periodic cleansing of the economy. They have decided there's going to be no periodic cleansing of the economy. We're going to keep we're going to eliminate the business cycle altogether. And if you want to do that, yeah, the value of your currency will accelerate to the downside. Next up, I talk to Greg and Dylan more about debt cycles. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And today we're going to kick off with Gemini, my exclusive exchange sponsor, the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I am not selling my Bitcoin right now. I haven't sold a single sat through Gemini because I don't need to because I'm long-term bullish on Bitcoin, but I have been buying. I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M, INI.com. Next up, we have Revolut. Now, I have been telling you for ages that Lloyd's TSB, my bank of 25 years, closed down my accounts recently. They do not like Bitcoin. And Revolut reached down. They said, Come on, Pete, we like Bitcoin. Move over to us. So I did. I moved my entire banking services over to Revolut. It took me a couple of hours. And you know what? They crushed it because these guys know banking and these guys like Bitcoin. Now, Revolut are offering a $20 or £20 bonus to all new customers that complete three card transactions. And it only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get the cash in your pocket ASAP. Now, I would just convert that straight to Bitcoin. You know I would. And so should you. Now, this is a new relationship and I am working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank, which is Bitcoin friendly. There is a lot to navigate, but we are going to crush this. If you want to find out more, please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD, which is R-E-V-O-L-U-T.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BlockFi and I am pleased to announce they have launched the BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now for people in the US who own or are interested in Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you can get 1.5% rewards back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack stats. Now, as I said, you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every single purchase 
But for the first three months of card ownership, you can earn 3.5% back in Bitcoin. And do you know what? Everything you spend over $50,000, you can earn 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to go and check this card out, please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And lastly, this week, it's Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger user since early 2017, and I am still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. You can also connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Greg, let me throw another thing in there. Okay. So, so we talked about it being unpopular politically. Um, if you try and make people take the economic poison of a of a end of a cycle, you're you're, you're going to you're going to risk not being voted for. Um, is there another thing here as well? And that like we're now in a globalized world. Uh, any of us can buy pretty much anything from anyone in any part of the world. Like I can buy services from you and pay you instantly online. I can travel to anywhere in the world. So. Countries now are in a position whereby if they choose to take the poison that maybe disadvantage them in the global economy versus other countries, it's, it's kind of like everyone has to take the poison together. If, if this is a global problem, because we're talking about global GDP and global debt these days, unless the world takes the poison at the same time, it's going to put one country at a disadvantage to another, right? Surely that's the position we're in. Am I right? Yeah, 100%. Especially, so like, especially after um, we came off like the the Bretton Woods system, 1971, um, you know, in, in 1944, basically after World War II, we, we agreed. Okay, the U.S. holds all the gold. We won the war. We'll we'll back the dollar with gold. Everyone else will back their currencies with the dollar. Well, that kind of unraveled because you know, game theory. They were kind of cheating the U.S. and 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 you know other countries as well. So um, starting in 1973, it was just the whole whole entire world was free float fiat. Um, we came off in, in 1971, but they, they tried to maintain a peg. After that, in 1973, it was just free open market fiat currencies. Well, the incentive there, there's kind of a perverse incentive where if you debase your currency or, you know, in this case, like lower interest rates, well, what do you do? You, you make your exports far more attractive. You, you suck in a ton of capital into your domestic economy. And so, you know, you'll see a lot of, a lot of like developing nations, especially, you'll see them like over, over the last 40 years. You know, if you were a developing nation, what you could do is you could make, you could basically debase your currency. You were incentivized to do it, and you and you spur your spur your economy, right? And so, like, there's no incentive to just jack up interest rates, you know, because to make you know to pay down your debt because that would destroy your local economy. It's kind of like a race down to zero. That's what that's what the global fiat game is. It's just everybody kind mm. of racing to zero the fastest. It is actually called. There's a term for it. And Rick Santelli said this famously on TV, on CNBC. Rick Santelli, Santelli being one of the few CNBC uh, reporters that has a spine that can go out and call out the government for stuff like this. He calls it beggar thy neighbor, okay? You depreciate the value of your currency so that your exports, which is, in, is, is your global uh, balancing, your foreign exchange trade is what balances C plus I plus G, uh, you know, your, your economic formula. Um, if you increase your, your FX trade uh, by debasing your currency or beg, beggaring thy neighbor, it's a short-term solution to your deficits, okay? 
And uh, that's the terminology. Um, Dylan, you, you, you hit on something that I wanted, to, that you didn't call it out, but the, you did in an article, a prior art, or uh, uh, an article after your excellent paper, you call it implicit versus explicit default. 1971 was an implicit default of yep. the United States. All right. What? You got to call happened? it like it is, guys. They defaulted. Tell people what happened in 1971. Well, yeah, what the fuck happened <laughs> yeah. in 1971? Well, I mean, I know what the fuck happened <laughs> in 19. 19- so you're, you're talking about coming off the gold standard to pay for Vietnam. Nixon wanted That's to pay right. for That's right. That war. was a default. That was a default. That was a default. Yeah. Let's call it what it was. Yeah, it I was see exactly a default. What you're saying. I'd never thought about it like that, but it was a default because, because Nixon wanted to pay for Vietnam War, came off the gold standard. Uh, and allowed him to print money, devalued. Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So, like, so an implicit versus an explicit default. Um, you know, Greg has this this long paper about credit default swaps um, and valuing Bitcoin off of it and, and all this. But you know, in a fiat environment, there the U.S. government or really any nation that that you know has access to their own printing press is never going to explicitly default. Meaning, like, you know, if you're a corporate corporate borrower or, or whatever. You know, if you don't have enough cash flow, or you, or you don't, you just, you know, you go bankrupt. You're, you're defaulting on your debt. Well, the U.S. is never going to default on their debt. They're going to go the route of Kelton, right? They're going to, they're going to print money. They're going to, and so, or though, if I could interrupt, though, this is important. What happened in Venezuela? They shoveled that currency to the to the curb. <laughs> is that a default? Yeah, I think yeah, it's so. An impl- they it's pay an you in a currency default. that gets thrown yeah. to the garbage heap. Well, Lynn Alden talks about this. She talks about the fact that the the way, you know, she talks about the various ways you can get out uh, of the, this situation. And one of them she talks about is that uh, she talks about the 130% uh, GDP, debt to GDP ratio. She calls it the event horizon. Like of 51, of 52 nations who've been in that position, 51 have defaulted. The only one that didn't is J- Japan. And she says the way they get out of this situation is they print themselves away. So the the bondholders are getting paid the nominal amount, but they're losing their purchasing power. Yes, except if she adds all debt in the world, with all due respect to Lynn, she's brilliant. It's actually 400%, okay? Because you need to add oh, all yeah, no, debt in the world. She's talking about individual because nations. Because if you have interest... Yeah, she's talking about public debt GDP. doesn't matter. You add it all together in the globe, and even in the in the USA, she's only taking federal debt. You need to add state, government, local, corporate. Unfunded liabilities on top of that, you don't even get to me. Don't even let me get into that. The point is it's four times. It's 400%. It is not 130%. Okay, it's gone. It's over. Mathematically, full stop. We're fucked. Yeah, it's I mean, hyper Bitcoinization essentially, like the next decade. Um, you know, this is this is the largest wealth transfer ever, and it's going to be from from creditors, right? Anybody that's a bondholder, your wealth is going to be transferred to Bitcoiners. Essentially, I mean, you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of nuance and like you know a lot of things going down there, but. If you're a bondholder, you are transferring not in nominal terms, but in real terms, all of your value to Bitcoin holders over the next decade. Well, let, let's uh, let's quote you again. A great debt jubilee is coming, and it will later be known as hyper Bitcoinization. That's how you put it. I think that was like, was that your final line on the whole paper? Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's kind of you know just another way to say what I just said is that. Yeah. So like the only way out from here is just is just to to continue to to make lower lower. And lower real yields, right? Like CPI just came in at five percent or six percent or whatever it was. Well, what's the what's the ten year treasury? What's the thirty year? Right? It's like 
the real yield on those on those securities is minus four percent. Let me ask and you. So the only way the only way forward is it just Bitcoin as low? But like, let's let's try and let's try and balance it out and be fair. What about gold holders? What about people who own property? What about people who own like other hard? Is it all hard assets? It's yes. It's not your house going up in value, Peter. It's the fact that the unit of account is going down in value, right? So everyone's saying I'm making so much money on my house. No, no, no. If you measure your house price in gold. It hasn't moved. If you measure equity returns in gold, they've been flat over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But everyone thinks they're going up because the unit of account of which you're printing more and more of and it's being debased, that unit of account makes things look like your house is going up in price. It's weird, but it's circular logic again. It's a circular Mm -hmm. error. If you measured in Bitcoin, well, it's not even close, right? I mean, everything looks horrible measured in Bitcoin, except Bitcoin, which one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. So, you know, Dylan, you're hitting at all the points again. Yes, it will be bonds. Because when you lend someone, Peter, a bond, you, you lend $100 for 10 years, the U.S. will pay you that $100 back in 10 years. The problem is in purchasing power 10 years later, it's worth like 65 cents. Hey, that's a great trade, isn't it? A fiat contract, it's good for the, le- the, the lender. It's horrible for the, excuse me, it's good for the borrower. It's horrible for the lender. Anybody who owns bonds right People now, are buying these bonds. Pension funds who are mandated. It's in their investment committee guidelines. They have to own X amount of their assets in bonds. It's there written in corporate law. They should mandate them to own Bitcoin. They don't move that fast, Peter. And by the time they do, Bitcoin will be, you know, currently, as I always say, Bitcoin price right now is still a rounding error. When Bitcoin hits 250000 bucks and it's still wicked cheap at 250000 bucks, a few of these investment committees may get their heads out of their you-know-whats and they'll, they'll say, okay, now it's time for us to own it. And meanwhile, El Salvador, the world will start to be learning Spanish because we better learn Spanish because they are so far ahead of the game. Do you know, it makes me think of that thing. I think it's Preston Pish who says it. Like, Bitcoin is a game of musical chairs. And when the music stops, you want to hold as many chairs as you can. Okay, basically. I think. I mean, I might I might have not got the quote exactly right. Someone, someone's going to come back in the comments on YouTube and go, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Preston said it different. But, like, I know it was it's something like that. Let's work through this. Okay, because it's not like there's a, there's, like, a point of no return. We've already gone past that, right? There's not like there's going to be one cataclysmic event. So how does this play? How does this play out? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll start with you. There Dylan. could be one cataclysmic event. Can I just say there could be a cataclysmic event? Everyone assumes the contagion. What if Argentina defaults again, which they're going to, and that will make four times in my life that Argentina has defaulted. In my 30 years of trading risk, Argentina will have held the record of defaulting four times. Yeah, but we won't be surprised by that. It's a G20 country, though. It's G20. Canada's G7. But Greg, I've got this mate, right? He's always, I'm not going to name him. He always borrows money off me, right? And like pays me back sometimes. But most of the time he never pays me back. He's a fucking (laughs) idiot. Right, he's that's who that's who Argentina, Argentina. Uh, let's, let's call him Dave. Argentina's my mate, Dave, who who never pays me back, and I'm like used to it. So th- let's not worry about Argentina. Let's talk about let's talk about who's the idiot, Peter? With all due respect, oh, I'm the who's fucking the idiot? idiot? Him who comes to you that keeps lending him money, or you me, that keeps I lending like him the money? I, mean, I like I gotta I like say, Dave. It. I like having idiot? a drink with him. It's, I like Argentina, and I like going there and having a steak and some Malbec, but. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not going to be like surprised by like if I read tomorrow Argentina's defaulted again, I'm not going to be surprised if I read tomorrow that I don't know, I don't know, 
How about yeah, Canada? Canada? What if Canada yeah. defaults? Would you be just, yeah. okay, we're in not good shape, okay, Peter? And we're a G7 country and we happen to be one of the United States' largest trading partners. We used to be. Yeah, the, the, we were, if we're not first still, we're second. The, the funny thing is, if we default, what would the people in the U.S. say? Oh, well, that's sort of weird. Because we always thought of Canada as being part of the United States almost. And by the way, they can't pay any of their bills. So all the stuff that we're exporting to Canada... Well, full stop. That, that's got to stop. And all of a sudden, people in the U.S. go, and why is Canada any different than the United States? So what States? you're saying is we... Good Lord, why do I own bonds? You're saying, Greg, we could have like a, like a Black Monday event. That, contagion. Yeah. Contagion. Contagion, you see it all the time. Contagion is the crisis of confidence in the ability of the system to continue. We needed to rescue the financial system in 2008 and 2009, and the Fed did the right thing. The thing they didn't do correctly was pay it down when they rescued the system. They continued to pretend that they could skate their way and eliminated that cycle, okay? They did the right thing because the world was ending. I was sitting in that chair and there were times when I went to work on March 2009 saying to myself, wow, this really could be it. And I promise you, unless you've sat in that chair, you have no idea what it feels like when all you want to do is sell anything you can because your clients are redeeming you. Oh, and there's right. no price. Uh, is this a bit like at the end of the big, you know, you know, the big short, right? Is this like the moment in that where like everyone's trying to sell their shit? They realize the game's up. I love you, man. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Hence, credit default swap pricing on right. sovereign nations. Before it was CDS pricing on financial institutions. I'm just taking it up a level. CDS pricing on sovereign nations is exactly the same as CDS pricing on Lehman Brothers. When Lehman, where the fire started, was in the credit default swap market, and everyone else was like, no, this is fine. The Fed's going to cut rates. The Fed's going to cut rates. And then kaboom. So all the smart people are basically doing the same with Bitcoin at the moment. They get rid of their dollars. No, they're not. No, they're not. Greg, Greg we're, we're the smart people. <laughs> I'm saying the smart people. Okay, how about this? But the smart people that understand credit default swap markets are still stuck in their little, um, okay, I better figure out how this works, but they haven't done the work on Bitcoin. That's what I'm saying. Nobody has studied it. Greg, not those fucking idiots. I'm saying all the people who understand Bitcoin, right? This is what we're Correct. doing. This, this is the moment at the, the end of the big short where, where they're trying to sell. They'll say, I'll take 30 cents on the dollars. I'll yeah. take 50, whatever. We're doing the same. I'll just take the Bitcoin I can get. I'll like, get rid of my dollars. I'll get rid of my yeah. pounds. Give yeah. me that Bitcoin because we don't. There might be one big kind of Black Monday. There might be multiple Black Mondays. There might be a, a series of events, the big events, small events. But either way, over the next however many years, we're going to see some form of debt jubilee. It's inevitable. The Great Reset. Yeah, I mean, like that that movie is pretty awesome. Like with, with when Michael Burry is sitting there and he's he's writing down. Uh, he's on his he's on his whiteboard and he just keeps marking down more and more losses. Like I mean, that's kind of what being a Bitcoin holder feels like over the short term, right? It's like I'm right, I know I'm right, but the market's telling me I'm wrong. But at the moment, like the entire like mortgage backed securities, all that junk in the big short, that's like the entire fiat system, and the credit default swap is like Bitcoin. Hallelujah, Hallelujah! And here's the neat thing: that was a movie, guys. 
Sit in the chair, okay? Your sphincter is tight as a fucking nut, okay? You can't even breathe. You're sitting there, you're sweating, you're like, fucking, my life is over. Everything I have invested in this system, in this business, I'm trying to, 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 to create. And I have a good track record, but the world is blowing up. And you cannot even breathe. And I promise you, that doesn't come out in a movie. You need to sit in the chair. You need to manage risk. You need to sweat your fucking ass off because you think the world is going to end. Well, this is the point I keep trying to make. So, uh, like, obviously, over the last year, especially last six months, I've had people come to me and they're saying, look, tell me about this Bitcoin thing. Why should I be buying it? And then the last three months, it's, it's a, it's a t- tougher conversation because people are saying, yeah, but, like, it went up to 64 and now it's down to 32,000. I'm saying, listen, you're buying Bitcoin for when you need it. You're buying it for that point where this stuff, where the shit hits the fan. If the price has dropped to 32 grand, that's a bonus. You can still buy cheap because you're not meant to be selling your Bitcoin now. You might be selling it five years or 10 years or when when you need it. So every time you see a price drop, that's a bonus. Like, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin you might is have insurance. Bitcoin you hold drop in value. Bitcoin is like house insurance and the house is on fire and the agency just called you up and it's like, hey, your premium just got cut by 50% and you're looking at them like, why do you just cut it 50%? <laughs> the cost of insurance just beautiful. Hallelujah. <laughs> and when do you buy default insurance? Oh, excuse me. When do you buy fire insurance, Peter? Real fire insurance on your house right now. Not when your house is on fire. You buy it before your house is on fire because no one will sell it to you. Rational people will not sell it to you when your house is already on fire. Except people don't understand that the house is already on fire. Do, do you Dylan hear- is exactly right. You're getting cheap insurance. Do you want to hear a funny story about that? So my house was literally on fire about three months ago. I was down the gym with my son, and my neighbor phones me, and they said, hey, Pete, your house is on fire. I was like, what? It's like, he said, there's like a fire at your house. So I come home, right, and my next-door neighbor, he's basically emptied his chimney. 24 hours after, like, lighting it, he's put all the ashes into the bin, thinking he's fine after 24 hours. Something sparked. There's been a fire. The bin's caught on fire. The side of his house is on fire where there's a door. So, like, the fire's gone into his house. My side is burnt down all the fence and my bikes. Luckily for me, there's no doors and windows on that side of the house. So, anyway, he gets in touch and he's like, uh, oh, I need your insurance details because you have to claim in yours. My insurance company will pay you. So, anyway, I go up to phone my insurance company and I, I get in contact. And they're like, oh, yeah, you canceled your insurance eight months ago. So, basically, my house was on fire and I didn't have insurance. <laughs> How funny is that? <laughs> Could have been worse. Like, dude, dude, I tell you, I was lucky I didn't have a window or a door that side and my house would have burned down. But anyway, I have house insurance now. What a fucking idiot. <laughs> anyway, that was a that was a So can I can I just so going back to the Michael Burry big short, Michael Burry was right because he's mathematically inclined, okay? The truth is the financial system is always overlevered and it's leverage unwinds that cause the ultimate pain. Okay. You're sitting there thinking the world's going to end. If you're short, meaning you own insurance, you're short the markets, you're still nervous because you don't know if you'll be able to collect because the guys that owe you all this money, they may go out of business. Like what if you owned insurance on Lehman Brothers, but you had bought it from Bear Stearns? Geez, you're like, I better go and buy some insurance on Bear Stearns because they're going down as well. So that circular circularity contagion expands. And then you realize Bitcoin has no counterparty risk. Nobody has to guarantee this insurance policy to me because it's called Bitcoin and it can survive a nuclear war. 
Maybe. Look, who knows? Let's not go that far. It can survive anything. We've seen it, it survived over time. It is anti-fragile. It is a thing of beauty and it has no counterparty risk. That is what you want in an insurance product, okay? And yeah, I mean, I think about a lot and especially after reading the um, Ray Dalio's Ray Dalio's books and all that about, you know, like past debt crises and, and whatnot, the solution to it uh, in the past, you know, the past centuries was was always gold, right? It was it was in, you know, when when you're at this point in the long-term debt cycle, you know, you want to protect yourself from a couple of different things. You want to protect yourself from the mon- like the central bank monetization where basically if you're holding bonds, if you're holding cash, you're you're getting diluted. You're getting you're you're getting your wealth inflated away. But you also you want to protect yourself from the counterparty risk that's you know that comes with with deflation, with contagion, what, what Greg's talking about. You don't want to hold anything inside of the banking system because the banks, you know, the banks or any financial institution might go bust, right? So you don't want to have any sort of counterparty risk. And I think about it a lot. I'm like, if Bitcoin wasn't around, like, God, would I would I be a gold bug? And like, I, you know, I pro- I probably would. I probably would hold like a fair amount of gold. Like. It's kind of depressing to think about, but you know, Bitcoin is just is just that that monetary asset, you know, that that bearer asset that has a production cost that has no counterparty risk, but for the digital age, for for, for the twenty first century, that's Bitcoin. And and you know, regardless of the, if there's inflation, deflation, contagion, there's always going to be because of that that proof of work algorithm and because of the protocol, there's a production cost. To producing Bitcoin, you cannot dilute my wealth, and you know, unlike gold, the terminal inflation rate of Bitcoin is zero. Well, let's dig into that that point again. I'm, I'm going to quote you again: "The Great Debt Jubilee is coming, and it will later be known as hyper Bitcoinization." Let's dig straight into that. So I think it's a good place to finish off because it's now people listen to this. It, it's a range of people. We're going to have like absolute Bitcoin heads who put all their money in and like crazy psycho Bitcoiners and they get it, right? They're in. And we've got some people who've maybe been in for like a couple of years and maybe they got like a good chunk of Bitcoin and they're like, oh, but it went up to 60 and it's come down to 30. I'm a bit worried. And then we've got the people who are just brand new. They've, they've, they're basically underwater with their Bitcoin right now and they think, what the fuck have I done? I should have bought Dogecoin. <laughs> like, let's kind of like set the record straight here. Explain, Dylan, what this great debt jubilee is, like how it's going to play out, how you think it may play out, and, and why Bitcoin is the answer. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a couple of different ways it plays out um, or, or could play out. Um, you know, there could be like like Greg said, this this large contagion event, the leveraging, and and there will be. Um, but the the thing that you have to think about is how does it play out after that? And and in, in my opinion, it probably plays out with central banks, governments around the world monetizing everything. Like the Fed balance sheet in, in 2030, who knows, it, it, you know, it might be $100 trillion. And so, so a great debt jubilee um, essentially is, is creditors getting their wealth wiped out in, in real terms. right? You're, like, you, you're going to get paid back on your 30-year or your 10-year government treasury. But, but what is that value going to be worth? Well, I don't know, but in in my opinion, and mathematically speaking, it's most likely, most definitely, a lot, lot less. Um, and so, as a Bitcoin holder, um, as someone that that buys every day, regardless of price, I know um, because of of how you know network effects work, because of the protocol, because I can run my own node, and I have complete assurance of of twenty one million. Um, I know that that you know honestly, the, the the volatility of Bitcoin for me is zero. Like Bitcoin's my unit of account. Like I, volatility doesn't matter to me, 
And so, you know, obviously that's like a tough mental switch to have, but um, hyper Bitcoinization is essentially that process happening around the globe, and it you know happens one by one, and you know day to day it can almost it's like almost like painful sometimes, like it's happening slow, slow, or like why like you know why can't people get it? But over time, you know, there's just kind of the shelling point where people realize that Bitcoin is the best monetary asset the world's ever seen, and one by one people are realizing that. You know, you'll have your hankies, you'll have your Peter Schiffs, you'll have people with e- with ego problems that get upset by this. I missed the boat, and they'll think they missed the boat for year after year after year. But there's just kind of this empirical reality that Bitcoin is the best money the world has ever seen. You just you had a great uh, episode with Parker Lewis the other day. Um, like you know, Parker's Parker's the man, and he he articulates it you know as good as anybody. Um, but Bitcoin is just this like is Bitcoin the best monetary asset the world has ever seen because of its assurances? Yes. Well, I mean, essentially, you can almost end the conversation there. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot of nuance and and how does this play out? Well, you you can understand that or think you understand that or not, but the reality is that Bitcoin will outcompete every other money um, going forward. And so, you know, if if you're just accumulating Bitcoin on, you know, in cold storage or on your balance sheet, you're going to be okay, uh, and your real wealth over the long term is going to be protected. And at this point, during the monetization process, is going to increase ten hundred, you know, five hundred fold, maybe. <laughs> I need more Bitcoin, brother. <laughs> Every time I have a conversation like this, I'm like, here's here's what a neat thing from a boomer. Okay, so I'm the boomer. I'm the boomer. And you need to understand, firstly, that the boomers have all the money still. All right. Uh, and when I say boomers, it's the guys that manage the big wealth, uh, sovereign wealth funds and uh, pension funds around the world that they have not even begun to invest in this asset class. Okay, they don't understand it. They haven't done the work. And when they do do the work, they look and they look to their their left and they say, dang, I don't want to be the guy that goes out on the limb and says that I'm doing this because nobody else is doing this. So it's called the theory of agents. They try and stay within their own lane because everyone's doing the same thing. But it's going to come where they own more than zero, Peter, but not 100% for their wealth in pot or their fund. They cannot possibly do that. But what is the right number? According to Yale University, the right number for anybody who owns bonds and equities is to own 6 to 8% of your Asset allocation in Bitcoin. That's a huge amount of money that needs to flow into Bitcoin to achieve the optimal portfolio allocation as a function of its volatility and its return potential. Okay, perfect. Most of these guys are at zero. If they were smart, it's been halved in price. It's come from 60 to 30 and it's still a rounding error based on where it's going to go. They just got to get that through their head. Bitcoin is not digital gold. Yeah. It is digital energy. And everything, every single thing in human history has been based on improvements of energy and energy productivity. Well, Bitcoin is the purest form, as Michael Saylor says, of digital monetary store of value ever created by humans. Okay, let's talk in 20 years, 20 years, not 20 days, 20 weeks, 20 years, because that's when the uh, the horizons of most pension fund allocators are, and that's what they need to focus on. It's empirically reality or empirical reality, quote unquote, Dylan LeClaire, sub 20 <laughs> year old. Are you 20 yet, Dylan? I think you were 19 when I last met you. So yeah, 20 years old. <laughs> okay, buddy. I'm three times your age. Okay. Oh, I'm three times your age and you're that's three times smarter than Bullshit. me. You are three times smarter (laughs) than me, and I love you because you are going to rescue the world. Because my generation (laughs) is the most selfish generation ever put on earth 
because we're too afraid to take a loss and we need to be coddled. And God forbid we ever had to go fight a war right now. I don't even know whether we'd be able to get a, a, an army together. And Canada used to fucking have- boomers. It's fucking boomers is right. A bunch of lazy, <laughs> fucking sappy, boomers. fucking spineless squids, okay? Yeah, and I'm, I, and I'm one of those. Us. And I'm I, one of them. You, this, I, I, this is, I, I, Dylan, this is why you can't afford a house because of this guy. And you should <laughs> listen. You're you're I'm, you're twice my age and about forty eight times smaller than me, and it's uh, it's impressive to hear. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's it's much about me. More about like like I'm here. Like I I kind of fell down the rabbit hole because of like the incentives, right? Like like Bitcoin like pulls mm-hmm. everybody in, and you you figure it out. Like the the curious and and the people that are willing to drop their ego are going to figure it out. Um, and that's just like. The incentives of, of of adopting a harder money. Um, also, kind of wanted to comment a little bit on like what you were talking about, Greg, with like portfolio allocation. A lot of people like what they don't understand with Bitcoin is like like if an equity if an equity doubles, right? Like nothing really, no earning increase or whatever, and an equity doubles or triples or quadruples in price, it becomes more and more and more risky, right? The higher the PE ratio, the, the riskier it becomes. But with Bitcoin, the, when Bitcoin doubles in price, when Bitcoin 10x is in price over a four-year period, it becomes less risky to allocate to. And that's what like a ton of people don't understand. As Bitcoin increases in liquidity and size and global dominance, it becomes a less risky add to your portfolio. And you can think about that in you know, risk-adjusted returns or volatility or all this thing. But you know, Bitcoin at a trillion dollars is, is a lot less risky to allocate to than it is at a billion or 10 million, right? Like, and so, you know, like all of the the, the big money as Bitcoin like as Bitcoin goes from 32 to 64 to 128, you know, it's just like naturally it's going to become a bigger and bigger, you know, part of the the people's like asset, you know, the, the right side of their balance sheet. It's going to it's going to naturally become a larger, you know, percent of people's holdings around the world. And, and you know, the big money can allocate a little bit later. They can afford to. For me, I'm 20 years old. Like I'm putting 100 percent of my disposable income into Bitcoin and not thinking twice about it. Like I don't care if it gets cut in half, you know, like. That's just kind of my, like, I guess, like, you know, I guess if you want to call it like a risk profile, like, I, I again, I don't perceive it as risky. Um, and, and I'm fine with it getting, like, send it to 10K. Like, I'm still allocating. Like, I'm, I'm not the, the thesis is unchanged. Like, you know, and so, yeah, I think, you know, it's just going to, it's a process. But um, Bitcoin, as it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, um, a lot of people haven't adjusted to that. Can I add this too? And that's beautiful, Dylan. Uh, Peter, I was lucky enough to get involved in Bitcoin. You call it lucky. I, I tend to think I did some work. It was under $1,000 US. Um, Bitcoin's a better investment now at its current price than it was when I got involved at under $1,000 yeah. US. All right. The five years that the system has proven itself, the network has grown, the talent in the network has grown, the protocol is more robust, the layer two is real life, layer three is coming. Bitcoin could be, not could be, the layer three on Bitcoin could uh, absorb all the successful DeFi apps that are currently living on other uh, on other blockchains. Okay, it's just unbelievable what this could cause in growth. Doesn't matter. The base layer right now is better value than when I got involved six years ago, and the price was one under one thousand US dollars per coin. I am more excited about the return profile of Bitcoin today than when it was under $1,000 a coin. Very simply because it is the network effect. The value of Bitcoin is the network. And that network is growing with use cases growing every day. And then if you want an an intuitive value, 
Bitcoin is default insurance on every single idiot fiat nation out there, okay, which is pretty good insurance to own because they've proven over time that they are a bunch of buffoons. And if you want to keep your money managed by buffoons, go ahead. Then who is the buffoon? Maybe it's Peter who keeps lending his money to his friend Dave (laughs) who never pays him back. Listen, Dave, look, if you went out for a beer with Dave, you'd lend him money. He's, He's good value. I, then I would, but then I wouldn't lend him money. I would just give it to him. I'd say, Dave, here's some money. And maybe that's what the governments are doing to us now. Hey, Foss, here's some money. And I'm like, I don't want your money because every time you give it to me, you'll fuck it up. I'm giving Dave stimulus checks, really, aren't I? <laughs> you may, may well be. Fucking Dave. All right, listen. Look, this is. I love gr- Dave. I, I love don't Dave. know Dave, but I love Dave. He, well, he's not actually called Dave. I'm not going to give his real name. He's, he, well, actually, he doesn't okay. listen to this because he's... He doesn't get Bitcoin. Uh, all right, listen, look, this <laughs> has been awesome. I'll tell you how I want to close this out. I want to close this out quite differently. Uh, it's been a great show. Dylan, great to have you on, man. You're smart as shit. I'd love to have you back on the show again in, in the future. Um, but Dylan, uh, I'm massively massively fascinated by the fact that you quit college. You've built your education up. You've you've become very, very smart and educated around Bitcoin and how the economy works. Like, Just for anyone listening who's in a, like, in a position, they're thinking, shit, oh, I like what this Dylan guy is saying point them in the direction of some of the things like you've read, you've mentioned the Ray Dalio book. What are the things you've read? What are the things you would say, go and check out, go and listen to, go and read? Yeah, I mean, so like I, you know, I kind of started stumbling upon podcasts, your podcast, Preston's podcast, and a bunch of others, read the, the Bitcoin Standard, um, like the the Bullish Case for Bitcoin, the Nakamoto Institute, all of that stuff. Um, and like my, my decision of dropping out of school, like it's totally not for everybody. You know, if you want to go be a... You know, a doctor or or anything that actually like requires a degree. Like, I'm not I'm not telling you to go drop out, but I would just say, um, especially kind of once you kind of come to understand Bitcoin. For me, it was about measuring opportunity costs in Bitcoin. It was about like Bitcoin was six thousand dollars, and I was sitting there in March or April, like clawing my eyeballs out and saying like, "What am I doing here? <laughs> I need some Sats. I need some Bitcoin." So like, I would just say, you know, like the opportunity cost is real. You know, like. Going to college, like none of these decisions occur in a vacuum. Um, and just like, you know, for anyone that's 18, 19, 20 years old, education is, and, and I was really inspired by Jeff Booth's book as well. Like, education is free, information is free and abundant. And so, you know, don't discredit that. Um, you know, a lot of things can happen, and, and the internet is a wonderful place. I've made so many awesome connections over Twitter, YouTube, you know, everyone else, um, just, just by sharing my thoughts, asking questions, hitting people up in DMs. Um, you know, don't think that you have to go to a university or get all this, you know, credentials and all that nonsense to to, to be someone or something or make it because it's 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 not the world we live in. Um, and the sooner that people figure that out, the better. Love it, man. And listen, Dylan, if people want to follow you, where do they find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, at btcization bitcoinization. Uh, my name's Dylan Leclaire. Uh, yeah, just just reach out, hit me on DMs. Happy to happy to connect. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'd love to having you on. Come back on soon, brother. If you work on another thesis or idea you want to do, like you've got uh, an open invite to come back. I've loved this. And Greg, any any final closing notes from you, my man? Very simply, I love the young guns. Okay, I, I'm I'm going to shout out a shout out to uh, Jack Mahler's a shout out to Dylan. Uh, I want you guys. I know you wouldn't take this job, but I want you guys to I'm, run. I'm still young. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, dude. But you're 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 young. You're beautiful. But you're just not quite as young as you need to be. Okay. Uh, So I want these young guns to run the world. Um, and you're going to someday, whether that's an aspiration or not, 
I want to make one final, two final call-outs to the young people changing the world. The kids in Guatemala, again, I mentioned them in Miami, the Guatemala, the Ibex Exchange. It's beautiful what they're doing. And now they got called into El Salvador as like the SWAT team because they get the Lightning Network. This is exciting. And then the final call-out, so that's Ibex, that's uh, Jose, and it's Mario, and it's Carlos. Uh, Here's a final shout-out to you, Peter, and this is important. Some young man from London, England, Oxford to be exact. Now, I don't know if he goes to Oxford University. He called me the other day on Zoom and he goes, I'm doing this Bitcoin exam and I want to help teach the world using an online Bitcoin exam. And I'm like, well, dude, this is brilliant. Yes. And he, he ran me through the beta test and everything. And I gave him some impact, you know, some uh, viewpoints that I had. But what I see is another young man who's 20 years old. His name is Stefan Allen. Mm-hmm. He might have, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 25 Twitter followers, Peter, and he lives in your backyard. And what? he has developed Let's this Bitcoin exam that is brilliant to allow people to understand, do they need to study more? Because it's not a simple exam. And there could be different layers. You could be beginner, me, uh, intermediate, or expert. The point is this. It's about, like Dylan said, education around the world. So a shout out to you young guns, okay? I hope to be around for the next 20 years. And I hope to talk to you in 20 years so we can create notes or compare notes. But what I will say is my three kids will be around in 20 years. And I promise you they're going to be comparing notes, okay? Bitcoin is not for my generation. We fucked it up. Bitcoin is my generation to make it work so we can pass something to future generations with value and store of wealth. Amen to people like Dylan and the Young Guns and amen to you, Peter, uh, for having a platform that the world listens to. Okay, so thanks for having me on and I look forward to to the successes and I look forward to the next uh, talking in again 20 years. Yo, Pete, can I uh, plug one more thing? Yeah, sure. Um, Do it. I like I do a I do with Bitcoin Magazine. I've I've been uh, doing a, a newsletter with like it's called the the deep dive. I just like put out my thoughts every day on the you know working with them um, on like macroeconomics on chain like kind of derivatives like what's happening in the Bitcoin market. I know uh, I believe Greg has a, a sub there, but that's just that's what I've been working on lately. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to give that a shill. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Greg, do you know who this Stefan Allen is on Twitter? I want to find him and follow him. Uh, okay. I have his, uh, give me, okay. If I lose you here, I'll, I'll, I'll DM you because I'm in, I'm a neophyte with this new uh, technology called a computer. Okay. So, so fucking boomer. I got, listen to him. I am a fucking boomer, buddy. I love it. Now, well, I'm going to follow him. So I'm gonna, I go I'm here. I want to follow him. You got to follow him. And I yeah. swear to God, I want this to succeed. I actually want it to be done in Spanish too. So I, um, I, uh, I I reached out to the boys down in, in Guatemala and they'd sent me a beautiful uh, response email today and they go, uh, you should see all the great things that are happening in uh, in um, in Guatemala and El Salvador, by the way. So that's a, that's a real life update from uh, uh, Boots on the Ground. Okay, so Stefan Allen, hold on. Well, listen, look, we, we're going to bore the listeners. You can ping that out to me. Love talking to you, Dylan. Anything you need, you reach out to me, brother. Greg, same as ever. I love you, brother. Hopefully, I will come and hang out with you at some point when Canada opens up, if it's uh, any time in the next decade. Uh, peace out. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Pete. Yes, peace. All right. What did you make of that one? I was blown away by Dylan's perspective on Bitcoin's role in what seems to be the end of the long-term deck cycle. Now, imagine dropping out of school and just learning all this shit on your own. I wish I'd done it. I'm such a waster. And this kid's so smart. 
He's absolutely crushed it. And go read his article as well. Give give Dylan some support. Follow him up on Twitter. He killed it, man. I'm going to get him back on the show. But I'm probably going to give him an open invite. Whenever he's got something new he wants to come and talk about, he can come on. Now, Greg, as always, brings a fire. I always feel like I want to buy more Bitcoin after talking to Greg. What a, what a cool dude. Anyway, if you've got anything you want to feedback on the show, you know you can hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can hit me up on my Telegram group. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, I only ever want you to do one thing. Just head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Anyway, love you all. I'm burnt. i got to go and get some work done. I will see you all on Wednesday. <laughs>